The video that was shown just moments ago, the different languages, was uh, first shown at council where I was at that meeting about four weeks ago. And I wish you could have been in a room with uh, 2,600 people uh, just moved when that video played. And I just want to remind you that oftentimes we find ourselves living in our little Vermont bubble. And every one of those folks that spoke in a native language, those are all our people, alliance people from every church around the world you can imagine, uh, speaking the good news of the gospel. And we get to be a part of that. And as we're gathered here for this, week, for this weekend of services around the world, those folks are gathering in multiple places, in multiple cities, in multiple countries, from major cities to little villages, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in every tongue that you can imagine. And someday, and we will stand in eternity And you will see and you will stand with every tribe and every nation and every language and every one of those folks kneeling down before the throne of God. And we get to be a part of that gathering. That's the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I'm glad to say that we're a part of that. I'm Pastor Scott. haven't been here for a couple of weeks, but I love being back and I hate when I'm gone. And my thanks to Pastor Matt and to Pastor Jim for jumping in on fairly short notice to, uh, to fill in and preaching. I was out of town. I got called out for a funeral. Uh, I, I, I miss being here. I lay in bed on Saturday night anxious to preach. I, 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 I miss when I don't get to preach and be with you. I don't feel that same way in the morning when I wake up, but before I go to bed, <clears throat> when I'm laying in bed, then I feel that. Morning, it's like, ah, got to get up and go to church. But at night, I'm pretty excited about it. I've had the opportunity in the past two weeks to do two funerals. Uh, one was just this past Thursday, uh, where we had a service for two people at once, J- Pastor Joan and, and Joan Murphy, Pastor Joe and Joan Murphy. The Murphys retired pastors. They served Grace Bible Church outside of Stowe for some 35 years. Uh, they then retired, came up here uh, to live with their kids, the Seavers, Rachel and Bob Seavers, and they both passed away during COVID, so we had their service just this past Thursday. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart, of course, for people in pastoral ministry. As I shared uh, during that service, um, sometimes when you have a pastor in your church or a former pastor, that's not always a good thing. Uh, because you know they've been pastoring for many, many years. And then, of course, <clears throat> they might sit in the church and the pastor might think he knows how to do it better. Uh, he's a better preacher, those kind of things. And so there's been some horror stories of churches that have former pastors in them. And those former pastors just cause nothing but problems. That is not true with the Murphys. If you knew the Murphys, um, they both greeted for years while they were able to do so. If you know anything about them, you know that they were just flat out encouragers. Uh, There's barely a Sunday that would go by that Pastor Joe would not come up to me with his Bible in hand and say, oh, I wish I could preach like you preached. And those kind of encouraging words. And if you know Pastor Joe, he's just this, he was just this sweet, level, calm guy, saw good in everything. Pastor Joe, Pastor, Pastor Joan, I probably probably should call her Pastor Joan. um, She had a different personality. She was a little wired. Um, and uh, when, you know, pastoral ministry, I've shared this, like I said, during the funeral. As a pastor, you know, sometimes it can be kind of tough. I was in college studying to be a pastor, and one of my professors said, just be ready, because when you get into church, you need to know that at any given moment, 20% of the people will either not agree with you, not want you, vote you out. I mean, 20%. So don't get locked in on those 20%. Remember, there's 80 but it's real hard to not hear from the 20%. Well, the Murphys, as pastoral ministry, they'd been through all that as well. 
And uh, whenever the Murphys would hear of somebody that was upset or somebody that might be upset with me, they would usually come to talk to me. And I have to be honest with you, in those moments, I didn't want to hear from Pastor Joe. He was way too calm and too nice. I wanted to hear from Joan because she would walk up to me and she'd say, those people are crazy. Don't you listen to them. And I love when she would say, you tell them, they don't know how good. Then she'd start up, you know, and I'd think, oh, just keep talking. You know, just keep talking. You know, you're saying all the things I want to say. Uh, that was one service. And uh, serving God for 35 years and, and uh, loving Jesus. The second service, or actually the first one I was a part of, <clears throat> just under two weeks ago, was Diane's uncle. And uh, when he died, he died on a Sunday morning. And during the service that Sunday morning here, uh, they called immediately to see if I'd come out and do the funeral. <clears throat> so I said yes. Uh, real quick story behind this. Diane's mom uh, had four brothers, so five, five siblings. And I've always, I've, I've talked to you about this before, but I'll just kind of remind you of this. And so um, in my family growing up as a kid, my mom and dad loved Jesus and my grandma and grandpa did, but that was it, kind of a small group. When we'd be together for big family gatherings, we're the only ones that love Jesus. And so there weren't many conversations about church or ministry or life. It just, that wasn't the conversation in that setting. We were a pretty small group. My first Christmas on Diane's side of the family, uh, and their name was Soderstrom. My first Christmas with the Soderstroms. I didn't quite know what to do with myself because I sat down with them. There were probably 50 people there. Every single person there loved Jesus. Every aunt, every uncle, grandparent, um, both sides of the family. And you could track their, their history of following Jesus back generations. I mean, generations of people who follow Jesus. And, I, and to sit in this room, I'm looking around, I'm not even sure where I'm at. Well, how, do you, how do you conduct yourself? Now, I'm a believer, but I, I feel like I'm in the presence of the saints. And I got to tell you, that is so rare. That is so rare and unusual to have family trees, generations deep. And even today, every aunt, every uncle, every grandchild, all followers of Jesus. I tell you those two stories for this key reason. Your faith in Jesus Christ and your walk with God makes a difference. It not only makes a difference in how you go through this life while you're living, it makes a difference when you die. Don't forget, the death rate is still at 100%, which means every one of us will have our turn. And I par participated in two funeral services where everyone there could sit there and absolutely rejoice because their loved one loved Jesus. But also, your walk with God makes a difference in other people's lives. May I ask you this question as we begin this morning? Who will be in eternity because of you following Jesus and living out the mission? I've said this of the Murphys. I'll say this of, of my uncle Merlin and his, all his brothers, all those guys who love Jesus. I said this, only now in the presence of God are they getting a chance to see the depth and the breadth of how their lives walking with Jesus have changed other people. I pray in my own life, Lord, I want people to be in eternity because of my walk with you. And so I give you that as a challenge this morning. Typically during the weeks of summer, I do a, 
series that usually is Bible book related. I mean, people come in and out and it gives a chance to kind of just jump in wherever we're at. But this summer felt a little odd and a little different to me because of COVID, having not met for so long. And I put it in this way, because the church, not just this church, but if I'm talking to other pastors, the church is really in a place of imbalance. COVID has left churches really at a place of imbalance. Um, people coming back, people not coming back, uh, people getting complacent. Um, on top of that, there's some friction in churches, those kind of things. So the landscape has changed. How church is done has changed. How church will be done has changed. The spirit in the, in the churches, spirit between believers has changed. So two weeks ago when I was out for the funeral, uh, knowing I was going to be there, my, my wife's home church, by the way, 41 years ago, I preached my first sermon in her home church. I, did, I was an interim pastor in my senior year of college. I was interim pastor. Her dad at that point was on the elder board. He came to me. I was in college. We were dating. He said that they were looking for a pastor. He said, would you be the interim pastor? I was senior in college. Uh, we'll pay you $50 a week uh, to preach on Sunday. I'm thinking, I get to go home with my girlfriend. I get to stay at her house. I get to eat her mother's cooking. I got to speak for 20 to 30 minutes, which I can do that without even trying. And I get paid 50 bucks. It was like, absolutely. I preached my first sermon in that church and then in from there for those next months. And so knowing I was going to be back in town for the funeral, I called my nephew who happens to now be an elder, head elder of the church. I was there when he was born. And again, I love that heritage piece. And so I knew that they're looking for a pastor right now. The guy had just left. So I called him days before. I said, listen, I'm going to be in town. I'll preach on Sunday if you'd like me to. And he never texts me back you know, for days. Eight seconds. Yes. You know, and I found out why. Because he was supposed to preach that Sunday. <clears throat> so yes, please preach. And then I said this. I got this thinking afterward. I serve on the board of directors for our national, our national denomination. I said, I'm willing to meet before church and let people know some of the changes happening in the, in the alliance if they'd like to do that. He said, we would love that. So I met at 9 o'clock. Church was at 10, 10, 15. I met at 9 o'clock with about 50 people that wanted to hear what's going on in the alliance. So as I was getting ready to go to start this gathering, I pulled him aside. I said, listen, here's how I'm going to start. I'm going to start and say, hey, let's talk about the fact that Donald Trump really won the election and I want to talk about this so-called vaccine that they're trying to sell us on. And he is, he, I mean, first fear and then a smile. He was like, yeah, do that. <laughs> I, and he, I know the church and the church split on those issues. I mean, tension. So I go, okay, I'm going to. So I did. He introduced me. I got up. I got these people sitting there. I said, so listen, before we talk about the alliance, anything else, let's just talk about the stuff that really matters. Donald Trump really won the election. He had to be put back in there. And on top of that, this vaccine thing, what's the deal with that? And everyone just stood right up, sat right up. I mean, you can tell immediately they were ready to engage. So I go, okay. I'm just like, okay, look it. You're ready to engage. So listen to this, I said. I had never dreamed 41 years ago when I was standing up here as my first time preaching and I was studying to be a pastor, I would have never dreamed that politics and a pandemic, actually the internet, that that would be the way that Satan would divide God's church. I never dreamt that the internet would be the key means by Satan dividing the church. I didn't think a, a worldwide pandemic would be the means for Satan to attack the church. I said this, I said, you all rather talk about those things, 
find out who's on your side um, and those kind of battles of who should be in or who shouldn't. You'd rather, you'd rather have those kind of dialogues than thinking about the fact that the world needs Jesus and in fact the person who lives beside you needs Jesus and it really doesn't matter who they voted for. I said, heaven forbid that they would need Jesus and they voted against your guy. Heaven forbid that they would need Jesus and they either got the vaccine or didn't get the vaccine depending on where you stand. And then I said this, I said, Lord, forgive us as a church for completely missing the mission of the church and getting wrapped up in all the stuff where we're supposed to look different. I said, now I have your attention. Let's talk about being on mission. Change the whole dialogue. You've never seen more attentive people. You've never seen more people more in favor of the mission of Jesus. Yeah. And I I knew he struck a chord. Now, so I'm thinking, what do you preach to a church and to believers that are going through such unprecedented times in history? And I mean, again, you say politics is over, but it's not. I mean, the political political election is not over. The tension is still there. The pandemic has created this another round of stuff. So what do you preach to a church and to believers who are in such confusing times? And then it hit me, well, you preach exactly what God said to the churches that were going through equally confusing and horrible times. And we have that in Scripture. So what I'm going to do for the next couple of weeks of summer is I want to talk about, I want to look at the letters that God wrote to the church at, to the churches in Revelation. In, a book in, in the book of Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. So here's our sermon, here's our series if you will. What Jesus has to say to the church actually to me. That's our series we're going to look at. And we're going to look at what he actually says to these seven churches that are, we, found, we find letters written to them in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And each of these churches are going through these unique moments that were totally un, in uncharted territory. And I couldn't help it when I looked at them and said, man, that's us. That's exactly where we are at. Now, before I jump into today's text and look at, those, and look at this first letter, um, let me remind you and re- kind of replay some thoughts for you. In 1986, the Nobel Peace Prize winner at that time said this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of success is not failure, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. You see, indifference is living your life not totally committed to anything. That's indifference. If you're indifferent towards something, it means you have this thing that somehow you care somewhat about, but you live in a way that's totally uncommitted to it. That's indifference. It's kind of like sampling all the appetizers at a buffet or going to some very nice restaurant or some nice gathering and the the appetizer plates come by and it's kind of like this. Everything comes by and you sample every appetizer that comes by because they all look so good and besides you're hungry. You try some of this, you try some of that, you kind of enjoy them but I mean you're really gathering everything and you can and then you realize you're full. The main course hasn't even come yet and you realize that now you don't even care about the main course because you filled yourself up on stuff that really doesn't matter but it happened to taste good in the moment. You ever do that? You ever been so hungry? You're so hungry you say, hey, let's get dinner ready. I'll help you get dinner ready. And you eat your way through preparation of dinner. You've done that? I've done it all the time. And by the time you get done, you go, bah. 
I think I have a bowl of cereal later because right now nothing sounds good because I've tasted everything as we've gone through this. That's the picture. You have so many other things that we taste in our lives that when it comes to the main course, we're indifferent. It's kind of like, ah. That's the picture I want you to get. Indifference is one of the most effective tools of Satan for destroying Christians and destroying churches. Do you realize that? Do you realize that one of the most powerful things that Satan can do in the church is not bring in some kind of deep, dark sin? All he's got to do is bring in the feeling of indifference. And the church is neutralized. How does indifference slip into a Christian's life? You're cruising along in your faith and all of a sudden you have this sense of dullness and apathy towards God or towards spiritual things. Well, how did that happen? You might find yourself at times saying, how did, how did I get there? Years ago, I spoke to a young man who had just gone through some very, very bad choices. He made some bad, bad mistakes. And, and, it was, and the pressure was coming on him for those things. And he reached out and he ran to God. Right place to go, just so you know. And as we were walking through this, he kept talking to me along the way. And he'd say these kind of things. I hope this feeling never leaves me. I said, what feeling? I feel so close to God. I feel so close to him. I'm, I'm reading his word. I have quiet time every day. And you could tell there was a vibrancy in his faith. And he said, I hope this never leaves. Now, just always also say, what often happens in our lives, we do something really, really bad and be on the brink of trouble, face of death, if you will. And man, we grab hold of God. And that's where he was at. And he kept saying, I hope this never changes. I remember walking with him and saying these words to him. I said, remember, if one day you find yourself in a position where it looks like God does not feel as close as he does today, I just need to tell you right now, remember these words, God didn't move. If one day you feel like I kind of lost that love, God didn't lose the love for you and God hasn't moved away from you. See, the reason that indifference slips into, our, into our, our Christian lives is because we forget or we neglect to do the first things first. First things first. I've used this illustration before, but it fits so beautifully. When it comes to my car, I want my car to work. Period. I don't want to think of maintenance. I don't want to take it in. I hate when the service light comes on. I don't want to do oil changes, though I know you have to do those. I just want it to work. Same thing in my house. I want everything to work. I went to get ice out, I mean, ice out of my refrigerator. I put my cup against a little handle. The whole handle fell down. I don't want that to happen. I just want ice. I got to call the repair guy. He's got to make an appointment. He's got to come out. I can tell him what's wrong. That we got to come out. And what's going to do? He's going to walk in. He's going to go, oh, you have your handle broke. I'll have, to, I'll have to order and come back. I don't want that. I just, I just want everything to work, right? That's how we operate. We just want everything to work. I just want my Christian, life to, my Christian walk to work. I just want it to happen. I don't want to have to put anything into it. The problem with your walk with God and mine is that it does require that I put first things first. The church we're going to look at today in our series is the church from a town of Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredible city. I've happened, to, I've happened to tour there in recent years. It's an incredible city. It was at that day an incredible city. Um, it was one of the most strategic of cities. It was one of the most modern of cities. It even had sanitation. It had a major theater. Incredible place. Strong, strong church in Ephesus. In fact, the church was so strong and so powerful that eventually it overturned the entire city for the cause of Christ. So a very strong church. Also a lot of pagan worship happening in Ephesus. Some of the first, uh, first traces we have are first uh, historical documenting of prostitution took place in Ephesus. You can go to her today and they'll still show you some of the etchings in the stone that marked houses of prostitution all wrapped around the temple of the goddess Aramis. 
So it's an odd city, if you will. And so even as we begin, I want you to first be honest because the first lesson that we're going to take from this church in Ephesus is this. If you want to keep your life, uh, your Christian walk alive and vibrant, you have to keep first things first. So even as we begin, I ask you to be honest with yourself. How are you doing in that area of keeping first things first? How are you doing in your walk with God where you're, where you're keeping him first? What's first place in your life right now? What occupies most of your time and most of your attention and most of your money? Let's be honest with God as we begin. Here's our text this morning, Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. Write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know what you do, how you work hard and never give up. I know you do not put up with false teachings of evil people. You have tested those who say they are apostles but really are not and you found that they are liars. You have patience and you have suffered trouble for my namesake and have not given up. But I have this against you. You have left the love you had in the beginning. So remember where you were before you fell. Change your hearts and do what you did at first. If you do not change, I will come to you and will take away your lampstand from its place. But there is something that you do that is right. You hate what the Nicolaitans do as much as I. Every person who has has ears should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to eat the fruit from the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. Jesus is clearly communicating to his church. These seven churches of these letters were churches just like ours. So when I say to you that God is speaking to the church, he's speaking to this church. Because those churches throughout Asia, the church of Ephesus is a church just like ours. And so he says to us this, your first love has to be me. Your first love of life has to be me. Now, how do we keep, how do we keep God as first? How do we keep Jesus Christ as being the first, uh, first things first in our lives, our first love? Let me give you the four things I want to talk about. I'll, give it to, I'll, I'll list them for you first, then I'll come back and I'll quickly walk through them, each one, and apply them. If you want to stop indifference in your life, spiritual indifference, if we are to keep Jesus Christ as first in our lives, four things. Now, first, we have to listen to Jesus. Second, Don't hide behind a busy schedule. Third, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your first love. And fourth, get a plan. I'll say them again. First, listen to Jesus. Second, don't hide behind a busy schedule. Third, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your first love. And then fourth, get a plan. Jump into the first one. First one, you have to start listening to Jesus. Friends, hear me very carefully. Jesus is still speaking to his people. He speaks to his people today as clearly as ever. The question is this, are we listening? Verse 1 says this, Write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. What are the last two words? He says this. Says this. Jesus is the one speaking, not John. Jesus is speaking through the words of Scripture into our lives. He has a message for me. He has a message for you. A message that will change your life. A message that will change your outlook. Are you listening to him? 
The first way we stop indifference is we have to cultivate in our lives a lifestyle of listening to what Jesus Christ has to say. Verse 1 through 3, again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants. I should say Revelation 1, not 2, but Revelation 1, 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon happen. And Jesus sent his angel to show it to his servant John, who has told, who has told everything he has seen. It is the word of God. It is the message from Jesus Christ. Catch this next verse. Blessed is the one who reads the words of God's message. And blessed are the people who hear this message and then do what is written in it. John says, listen. Jesus Christ is speaking. He gives the introduction and says, listen, I might be writing this down, but these are the words of Christ. And what John would say to us is this. Now listen carefully. There's a message that Jesus is going to give you. It is a message that will bless you. It's an important message. It's a message that brings with it happiness. It's a message that brings with it joy. It's a message that brings with it prosperity. But you have to listen to what he says. And then you have to act on it. Think about this. You go back in the Old Testament. And you look at all of the instances when God immediately blessed someone and you ask yourself the question, what's the common denominator? You know what it is? It's obedience. If you go out to go through all of scripture and look at the occasions where God blessed someone and you look to see what's the common thread between each one of those stories, you will find that they heard from God, they listened to God, and they did what God told them to do. Boom. Blessing. Every single time. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 26 says this. But my people have not listened to me. Or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful. Even worse than their, than their ancestors. You see when we stop listening to God. We stay sinning. And we stay in our trouble. It all happens when we stop listening to him. Now here's our problem. We have selective listening. Any of you struggle, struggle with, from selective listening? You ever have that problem? Let me rephrase it. Wives, any of your husbands have selective, selective listening problems? You know, I, I told Diane, I went to, I had physical and stuff, went to the doctor, got my hearing checked. I came back and said, it's the strangest thing. Doctor was telling me that I don't hear a frequency. It happens to be the same frequency, Diane, that your voice is on. It's the strangest thing. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't. Who, who would have thought that that could have happened? And you know, sometimes a frequency works and sometimes it doesn't. It's just amazing how that works. Uh, the truth of it is, folks, every one of us have selective hearing problems when it comes to listening for God. Every one of us knows what it's like to hear him and then to tune him out. Every one of us knows what it's like to clearly have moments in our lives. Even right now, he's speaking to you. For some of you, you know right now areas of your life where you are not listening to his voice. Every one of us knows what it's like to hear it and kind of put that aside, not do it. Selective hearing. It's a problem. You want to know the answer to most of our life's issues? It's found in this, in this passage. Matthew 17, verse 5. But even as he spoke... A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. What's the last word say? Listen to him. You want to know the source of most of our problems? 
We refuse to listen to him. If we can only get that right, our lives will be radically changed. We've got to listen to, we've got to learn to listen to Jesus as he speaks into our lives. Let me real quickly just give you a couple of helpful things. Let me give you just a couple of things, I think three or four things that I have seen in my life that have to be present for me to hear the voice of Jesus. I'm just going to give you bullet statements. First one is this, I have to have quiet time. I have to have quiet time with God. A regular time to stop, to think, to listen, to pray, to worship. I got to be in his word. I have to have that quiet time. When I don't have that, I immediately see my week change for the negative when I haven't had quiet time with God. Second thing you have to have in your life if you want to hear from Jesus, you have to have the, the voices of, other, of, of others. The combined voices of others. Oftentimes, I hear Jesus speak to me through the wise counsel of other godly people. I'm very careful to say combined because I also know what I'm like. I will seek out someone who will agree with me on some issue where I could be absolutely wrong and think I've heard from God simply because they agree. And so I've learned that I have to have the combined voices of people who follow Jesus. And oftentimes I will hear someone say something into, my, into that moment and I think, I just heard from God. The third area in my life where I've come to see that I, I hear Jesus best is through sermons or through teach, from teaching. I can't tell you how many times I'll use this on the opposite side, but it's a part of my life as well. I can't tell you how many times I've got done preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning and one of you will walk up to me and say, oh, that was incredible what I just heard. You said this and this and this. This is God speaking directly at me. I'll go back and look at my notes. I'm going, man, I never said any of that. I wish I had because it sounded really good the way she said it. And then I realized this, friends, the Holy Spirit, right, speaks to us through his filter. And if you're open to hearing from God, you will hear things that you're sure you just heard it clear as day. And you can look to the person sitting beside, did you hear that? And they'll say, I didn't hear anything. And then they'll say, but I didn't hear this. You'll go, I didn't hear that. When we submit ourselves to God's teaching, we hear him. And the last thing is this I've learned. Now, I can't quite explain this one, but I'll just say it and I think you'll get it. I've learned that I tend to hear Jesus better the more that I obey him. I can't explain that. But when he tells me to do something, and then I go and do it, it feels like there's this heightened sense of his presence, and I hear him better. Obedience does that. I would challenge you right now, even before the end of the sermon, if you know there's something in your life where you know you are not living in obedience to Christ, go and do it. Obey right now. And you'll hear him more clearly than you can ever dream. So the first step in defeating indifference is we have to, have to learn to hear from Jesus, listen to him. The second way to break free is don't hide behind a busy life. Don't hide behind a busy life. Here's what it says in, in uh, verse 2 through 3. Now he says, I know what you do. I know how hard you work and you never give up. I know you do not, that you don't put up with false teachings of evil people. You have tested those who said they're apostles but really are not. And you found them to be liars. You have patience and have suffered troubles for my name. And you have not given up. Now, I look at this and I say, man, 
These people are working hard. And in fact, I would make this observation. God acknowledges you've been doing this and this and this. He acknowledges that they've been working pretty hard and they're pretty busy doing it. See, when you have a false teacher in your midst, the only way you get to whether they're false teachers or not, you've got to put the time in to sit down with them and engage with them. And it's wearisome. I just recently, with our whole, in our denomination, spent hours and hours and hours with a guy that I had to try to figure out what's going on in his teaching. And it's wearisome when you go into this mental, spiritual battle to figure it all out. God says, man, you guys are working really hard. But I also notice something. Everything we just listed is external. I mean, what that means is this. They're serving Jesus. They're very busy. They're serving Jesus. They're working against evil teachings, taking a stand against it. They're not putting up with disruptive people. These are all very good things, but they're all external things. Serving in the church is a good thing. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you are not serving in the body of Christ, in some area of ministry, you don't know what fulfillment feels like. Because God designed it that way, that when you serve Christ through his church, there's a sense of fulfillment that you can't find any other way. It's a very good thing. Shutting down evil teachings is a very good thing. Taking a stand against dis- uh, disruptive people in the church, very good thing. The people were really busy in the church. And if like us, they're also busy with other things, right? It's not just the church. There's jobs and career, school-age kids, soccer games and hockey games and baseball games. There's golf to be played, hobbies to be done, houses to maintain, all that stuff. Very busy. Busyness is a killer of intimacy with Jesus. You see, friends, listen to this. God is the one person. God in our lives is the one thing in your life that you cannot afford to abandon. But he's also the one person or the one thing in your life that will not scream for attention. Think about that. The one part of your life that you cannot afford to abandon is your walk with God. And yet God is the one person in your life that will not scream at you for attention. Man, I got a house that screams at me every day. Right? I mean, those bushes, they just keep growing. I want to tear them out, but that's more work because I got to replant them and I got to redo them. It's like, ah! And all of those things, are not, our families scream at us. Our jobs scream at us. God is the one who will not scream at you. And he's the one you dare not abandon. Eric Hoffer, now deceased American philosopher, said these words. He said, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and then having no time. It is, on the contrary, born of the unique fear that somehow we are wasting our lives. Now catch this next statement. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else. We are the busiest people in the world. You say, what exactly does it mean? It means this, powerful. When we don't do the one thing that we're supposed to do, we will be busy doing everything else. What's the first thing? Our love of God. Folks, you can be too busy with all sorts of good things and still miss the first thing and the important thing. You want to break the indifference? Don't hide behind a busy schedule. For most of us, we would say, oh, when things let up, then I'll really hone in on my walk with God. Third thing, if you want to break free from indifference, acknowledge it. If you want to break free, regularly acknowledge Jesus Christ is the first thing in my life. Even if he's not first, acknowledge he is. I mean, that's a starting place. 
And say, you know, if you can't say he is first place, say, I want him to be first place. Acknowledge it. Jesus is my first love, verse 4. But I have this against you. You have left the love you had in the beginning. Now make sure you get this. They had all sorts of stuff they were doing which was right. You know, friends, I would suggest to you that most of the stuff in our lives, most, I'll take you out of the picture, most of the stuff in my life that has me busy are all good things. Most of us here are not busy in sinful dark areas. We're busy in all the good things of life. But that cannot be a substitute for the most important thing. I have to stop and acknowledge, man, I have lost my first love. Jesus is saying, listen, you got a whole bunch of good stuff there. I see it. But you're still missing the first thing. C.S. Lewis said this, every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. If you lose your first love for Jesus, no amount of services that you do will save your spiritual health. Catch that? I think we all agree that the, the strength of our spiritual health is exactly proportional to my love for God. And all of the Christian service in the world will not keep you spiritually healthy if the heart is not there. One of the starting places for renewing your love for Christ is to regularly declare that Jesus, you are my first love. Start your day. Today, Jesus, you will be the first, my first things first. You'll be my first love. Probably one of the best pictures or illustrations of this idea of having a first love and and the indifference that can crop in is in marriage. A a counselor at a marriage weekend gave this story and said this example. A man came up to him and just says, now I'm getting a divorce. I no longer love my wife. The counselor said, let's talk for a couple moments. Did you fall in love with your wife the first time you saw her? Like immediately, I love her. And the guy said, well, no, we dated for quite some time. And during that time, we fell in love. Counselor said this, isn't it interesting that it wasn't a moment in that you fell in love and it wasn't a moment of time that made you fall out of love. He said this, it was over a period of time as a result of neglecting certain things and replacing them with other things that you actually grew out of that loving relationship with your wife. Just as you allowed yourself to grow into love for her, you allowed yourself to grow out of love for her. And then he said this, would you like to grow back into love with your wife? I can help you do that. You see, we make decisions to step into what we will love. It's a process. And friends, if you've lost your first love for Jesus, you've also allowed that to happen in the reverse. Let me give you the last one. If you want to stop indifference, then you have to make a plan. You've got to start by saying something has to change. Verse 5 says this. So remember where you were before you fell. Change your hearts and do what you did at first. If you do not change, I'll come to you and take away your lampstand from its place. Change your hearts and do what you did at first. I start there because oftentimes people always say, yeah, but that first love thing has to happen. 
You know, most people, when they fall in love, they go, I didn't mean to fall in love. It just happened. Like I was walking down the creek and I slipped on a slippery rock. Boop, fell in love. No, you actually did the right things. And if you have fallen out of love with Jesus, on a side note, if you think you've fallen out of love with your wife, I would suggest that you can get back in the game. Because Jesus wouldn't have said, change your hearts, if it was just up to this mystical thing that's supposed to happen. He says, you can control this. So you want to change your indifference, he says, make a change. And he starts by saying, first thing he says, remember. The starting place for change is, he says, remember what? Remember what it was like when you were first in love with Jesus. Remember what it was like when nothing else mattered but him? Can you remember the time when you realized how much that he loved you? Can you remember how it felt to first be loved and to be totally forgiven by Christ? Remember it. So when you remember when you were first in love, not only do you remember it, but you know what it helps you do? It helps you get back to it. Because it rekindles it and it restarts it. Years ago, actually about, well, 2018, my first date with Diane was 41 years ago on, on, in August of 2018. And uh, I was scheduled to, to speak at a church in Minnesota. I had gotten the dates fixed so that I could be there at a certain time. Because our first date, we had met each other on a Thursday. Our first date was Saturday. We went to the Minnesota State Fair. Huge fair. And so I had planned to go back and preach on that weekend so that I, we could take her to the Minnesota State Fair. And she didn't know it. She didn't know at first we were going to go there. She was going to go with me. I was going to speak. But I had set the date. We were going to go to the state fair. It's a huge thing. We, we were there all day and didn't see all of it. So it's a, it's a big fair. I had actually arranged for a couple of our kids to be there and surprise her. But the big moment came. And I, I mean, I remember the date. I remember that first date well. I remember taking her down to the midway. Again, first date, two days we've known each other. We're in this midway packed full of shoulder to shoulder. And so I said, well, you better give me your hand so I don't lose you in here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Give me your hand. Okay. I never let go of that hand. One of the best parts, we got a rental car at the airport, and we're driving to the hotel, and by now I told her what we we're going to do. I said, hey, we should listen to some, to some music. And I already plugged my phone in, and I already played a playlist of all of the hit songs of August 1978. And I said, we should play some music. And so I... It looked like I was turning the phone, the car radio on. Actually, it was my phone playing all of the songs that we, quote unquote, fell in love under in 1978. And man, with a smile, she goes, hey, wait a minute. I said, yeah, these are our songs. You see, when you remember things, something happens. One, it takes you back there and you can grab hold of it. But when you go back and grab hold of it, you can then move back towards it. Now, I'm not talking about going back and reliving the past. I'm talking about remembering the past so that you can go forward and live in the future in an exciting way with Jesus. Um, remembering works in your walk with God. But he also adds this in here. Also, there's the word repent. Back to that same verse. He says these words. So remember when, where you were when, before you f fell. And then he says, change your hearts. That change actually means to re reverse and change course. Actually, it's kind of the same definition that we have in Scripture for repent. He says, remember where you came from. Turn around and get back there. Change your heart. Change your direction. You picture this. Um, Jesus, I've lost you as my first love. 
I'm sorry. I'm going to change this. I'm going back to you. See, a lot of people think that just feeling bad is enough. A lot of people just think that they're good intention. Yeah, not my first love. And I really do mean to get back to him. That that's enough of it. Not enough. Jesus says, change your behavior. Back to your first love. And then he ends with these two things in verse 6. He says, but there is something you do that is right. You hate what the Nicolaitans do as much as I. Let me give you a quick, quick story who these people are. So the church in Ephesus is a very strong church, a very powerful church. But I said that there was this big temple in town to the goddess Hermaeus, also known as the goddess of Diana in Roman history. This was the goddess of fertility. What they have done is with this worshiping of this goddess, every kind of immoral behavior was allowed to happen under the worship of the goddess Diana. The Nicolaitans were a group of people who said this, it's okay to combine Christianity with this kind of worship. They were a group of people that said, yeah, we really love Jesus and immoral behavior is okay. And see, the people in Ephesus, the church there said, absolutely not, it's not okay. So God puts this in there because he wants to say to them, listen, I know your hearts are right. I know you want to do the right thing. So follow your heart back to me. Then the final words he says is this. And every person who has ears should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to eat the fruit of the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. He says, if you have ears, you better listen to what the Spirit of God is telling you. So here's the ending question. So what is the Spirit of God telling you? Because you see, when they wrote, when they read this letter back then, they would have clearly known exactly what the writer was talking about. But make no mistake, so do you, I know. When I say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? I can tell you right now, I can look at the areas in my life where I've lost my first love. I see the areas where I'm out of obedience with Jesus. If you ask him, he'll show you. So the question as we end then is this, what's the spirit of God telling you? Is Jesus Christ first in your, in your life? Does he have the first place? Or has indifference slipped in? Have you learned to listen to him? Are you willing to obey him? What needs to change? What do you need to remember? And then based on what you're remembering, what do you need to go back to? And what has to change in your heart? If you have ears, you can hear this. You'd be listen, you should be listening because your life's at stake. So lesson number one from our first church, first things first. And he's first. Stan, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. I couldn't help but studying my notes this week and being convicted of multiple areas where I have set you aside. I've become indifferent. And yet, I, I don't feel indifference all that badly because because I, I don't mean for it to happen and I, and I still want to believe, I still want to do the right things. And yet indifference leaves me paralyzed. May you be first in our lives. All for Jesus. Amen. God bless you.